0: The seven seals. Uh, it's an interesting passage of the Bible, um, so let's get into it. Uh, last weekend, uh, I was up the coast. Uh, I think uh, I was enjoying the the warm weather. I was enjoying kind of the first visit to the beach uh, after winter. Uh, and our girls, and our both of the age where they love jumping waves. I think if they could. Uh, They would stand at the water's edge and jump waves all day long. Uh, But for now, they still need to stand on the shore. Uh, We've told them that unless an adult is with them, uh, they can't go further into the water uh, because they can't swim well enough in those conditions. Uh, They don't know what to do when the water gets too deep or when uh, the sand gets washed out from under their feet. Because once you go further into the sea, you need to know what to do, don't you? How to conduct yourself when those really big waves come in. And if you've ever been hit by a big wave, uh, you'll know the sensation. It's disorienting uh, as the salt water gets in your eyes or up your nose. And if you time it wrong, you'll pop right up as the next wave arrives, repeating and compounding the process. And so, simply coming up for a breath soon becomes a challenge. Staying calm becomes a deliberate action, a choice to be calm, in, even as your instinct is to begin to panic. And I think sometimes uh, life can feel a lot like those waves rolling in one after the other. See, when times are good, it can feel like we're standing on the shore and we're letting the cool water lap at our feet, and we have a fun and it's enjoyable time. But other times, and and maybe that's been this year for you, is we are deep in the water, struggling to find our footing, and the waves are crashing over our heads one after the other. And whether it's our personal circumstances or simply what the whole world has been dealing with, that can be what it can feel like, those waves rolling in. So how do we navigate a world that seems to be experiencing wave after wave of trouble? And what specifically does the book of Revelation, uh, full of strange images that, that aren't easy to understand, what does that have to do with our current circumstances? How is this book supposed to help us today? As followers of Jesus, what does Revelation have to do with us today? Well, I think the first thing from today's passage is a reminder that in our present reality, Revelation tells us don't be surprised by the state of the world. Don't be surprised or alarmed at the state of the world. Now, a few years ago, uh, my wife Christine and I, uh, we went on a trip to the east coast of America. Uh, It was to be our kind of last big trip before Eliana was born, so we knew we should make the most of it. Our plan was to go to New York City and then branch out to see a few other places like Boston, Niagara Falls, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. Uh, and so we did what everyone does now. Uh, we booked our tickets online, we found our hotels online, uh, we booked our tours online. Uh, what I didn't realise at the time uh, was the bus tours that I had booked uh, from New York to Niagara Falls and to Boston, um, they were essentially aimed at tour groups from one part of the world. Uh, They were aimed at tour groups from mainland China. And so even though the whole website was in English, uh, it made no mention of the fact that all the staff would be speaking Mandarin. And actually most of the people on the bus spoke Mandarin. And so you can imagine it was quite a shock when we hopped on the bus uh, and suddenly realised everything was happening in a language that we didn't speak. Uh, And that was like for a two- or three-day bus trip. Now, I admit that the guides, they made an effort after they spoke to everyone else to then come and speak to us in English, but it was pretty obvious that English wasn't even their first language, and we were not their target audience. Uh, I was pleased that we weren't the only people there in that situation. There were a handful of others, um, but they actually bailed halfway through the trip uh, because they couldn't put up with it anymore because that is not what we signed up for. And those couple days definitely didn't align with our expectations of our trip. Uh, When it comes to our experience of the world, often we can feel surprised or even alarmed at the things that we see, because they don't align with our expectations of the world. But Revelation says, don't be surprised. What we have here in Revelation is a perspective of history given to us in the form of four horses with riders. You might have heard them described as uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But it's important to remember that this genre that we're reading, apocalyptic literature, it isn't necessarily just describing the end of the world, but it's a genre that has this idea of words that are sealed up for a time and then later on they are unsealed so that people can understand what's been happening. Things are hidden, and then they are revealed so that people may understand. Now, in the past couple of weeks, I think Mikey's done a great job of explaining uh, the number seven, and it has a symbolism of completeness or perfection, like the seven days of creation. And now here we have another number that occurs a lot, which is the number four, and that also represents completeness, but in a geographic sense. Think of like the four corners of the earth. And then there's another number, which is the number 12, which is completeness, but of God's people. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. So when you hear those numbers, 7, 4, and 12, they all represent completeness, but in different applications. 7 is complete perfection. 4 is completeness in an earthly sense. 12 is completeness with regards to God's people. And so here we have four horsemen, something to do with the earth. The first is a white horse and rider with a bow and crown. He's a king riding out as a conqueror bent on conquest. He is military might and power on display. The second horse, a red horse, and his rider is given a sword and power to take peace, allowing people to come to kill one another. He is the embodiment of conflict. The third horse is black and his rider holds scales. And what seems to be suggested here is a time of scarcity or famine. It references how much a day's wages could buy. And for what we know, this passage is describing prices that are 10 to 12 times what they should have been. The fourth horse is a pale horse, the colour of a corpse. We're told more about his rider, it's death, Followed by Hades. And this horse seems to be a combination of the other ones. Uh, the riders are given power to kill by the sword, famine and plague and the wild beasts of the earth. And they're allowed to kill up to one quarter of the earth. But what are we to make of these four horsemen? You know, is this a timeline of events of something that's coming? Or is it a historical record of something happened during and after the Roman Empire? Well I would suggest it's neither of those, but rather a summary of our reality in a fallen world. You see, these four horses and their riders are a means of describing the human condition, because our world is always being ravaged by these very four things, war and conquest, personal conflict and people killing one another, famine and scarcity of resources, and widespread death, they always have been part of the human condition. And so these four horsemen of the apocalypse are a snapshot of the constants of our reality. They are an artistic means to capture the imagination of believers, to understand that war, conflict, famine, and death have always been present but they're not good. And I want you to notice they're not unlimited either. Notice how each writer is given power to achieve its purpose. And even death and Hades are limited. They are restrained to only have power over a fourth of the earth. Now, we might not fully understand the interplay of how they're given authority, but what is clearly described here is that they are not free to destroy creation as they like. Something, or rather someone, is restraining them. that leads us to our second point, that there is a heavenly reality, and that is God is still sitting on the throne. We can take heart because God is still sitting on the throne. Now, if you've seen, and I would expect most of you have, uh, The Matrix, you'll know that pivotal moment Uh, When Neo is presented with two pills. And he's told, This is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. So the character is given the option do you stay in blissful ignorance? Or do you see the world, blissful ignorance, and taking the world at face value? Or do you find out how things really are? And as we switch from those first four seals to the fifth one, our perspective shifts from what is in front of us to what heaven sees. As the four horsemen roam the earth, it's easy to think that things are spiraling out of control. They were stuck in a never-ending cycle of war, conquest, conflict, famine, and sickness. And this year seems to be a year of never-ending bad news, isn't it? Bushfires, a pandemic, nations in conflict, authoritarian states flexing their control. But when we look at Revelation 5 verse 9, this is what it says. Wait. who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, so we've been looking at these four horsemen, and suddenly we're in heaven. We get this perspective of a temple, and that's a common description of heaven. And here in the temple, there's an altar, and under the altar are the souls of those who were killed because they followed Jesus. These martyrs are people who stood firm, in trusting Jesus, and we're told they're given a white robe, which is a symbol of God declaring them innocent. And they cry out for justice, God, when will you avenge us? And they're told, wait a little longer, rest a little longer, until the full number of martyrs, of witnesses, was filled. That's to say there are still more believers whose lives will be given because they trusted Jesus. And I mean, I hear you ask, how is this good news? How is the good news that more people are going to die for following Jesus? But the idea here is that there will be a time when that number is complete. There is a threshold. There is a finishing line. There is a time when the dying of God's people will end. What's more, all of creation will know it. In verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked And behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, the day that these martyrs are crying out for will become a day of terror for the enemies of God. Those who embrace conquest and war and conflict, who profit in times of famine and sickness, We're told they would rather flee to the mountains and cry out for death rather than stand before the judgment of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Can you imagine the picture? The full number of God's people martyred for their faith has come in. And then there's images of earthquake, a blackened sun, a full moon like blood, stars falling from the sky. And these are less about literal descriptions of events but they're references back to the Old Testament. They're pictures that have always been painted of the coming of the day of the Lord. They signify that creation knows it's the end of rebellion against the king. Now, after this picture, the sixth seal, there's a little interlude in Revelation. There's one more seal to come, but John stops and shifts again. And we'll actually see next week in chapters 9 through 11, there's a similar pattern. This week, we're looking at the seven seals. Next week, there are seven trumpets. There'll be six trumpets, and then a little break, and then a final trumpet. But before we deal with the interlude, I want to go to the seventh seal. So turn with me to Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning lightning and an earthquake. So we've had the sixth seal. The kings of the earth are running. They're hiding in caves. The generals, the rich and powerful, are calling out to the mountains, fall on us. And then when the seventh seal is open, something unexpected happens. Silence. We're told a great hush comes over heaven, for half an hour, absolute silence. There is no yelling, there is no arguing, there is no place for the kings of the earth or the generals to plead their case, there is only silence, absolute sovereign silence. Now, over and over in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk, in Zephaniah or Zechariah, we are told, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And just like Job, at the end of the book, when he finally understands how small he is before God, he says, surely I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When creation sees when we see God enthroned in heaven on that day, we will see him in all his absolute sovereign glory. And that moment, that perspective of the seventh seal will render all of heaven silent. You see, While we might feel like we're in the matrix, we see the first four seals, we see the four horsemen, we see conflict and conquest, famine and disease, the heaven reality is God is still sitting on his throne and he is still in absolute control. And he's bringing all things to their conclusion. It's like switching from from one camera, camera one, to camera two. And then we go to another camera and we see As God is doing this, we see the martyrs under the altar crying out for justice. And then another angle. We see the puffed-up bravado of the kings of the earth disappearing. We see the glory of human rulers disappear. The generals are crying that the caves would land on them instead. And then we go to the last camera, the seventh seal. Absolute silence. There's no chaos There's no arguing. There's no fighting. Everybody knows who's in control. It's the seventh seal. Remember the number seven? Complete perfection. Absolute authority. Supreme holiness. But what about this interlude? What's that about? Well, I think John puts in this interlude for us to remind us that we have a certain future and that God has had a plan from the beginning. Not far from where we live, uh, there's been a warehouse standing as long as we've been there. And just recently, it's been knocked down. Uh, Right now, there's probably half a dozen diggers going to work there, uh, flattening the ground, preparing the foundations. And and so it's a, a toddler's dream. Our kids walk past and they just count the number of diggers. The thing is, as a person walking by, I have no idea what's going to be built there. Even as the foundations are laid and scaffolding goes up, it still won't be that obvious. And when the walls go up and a roof is put into place, I might see the exterior, but I won't necessarily be able to work out the layout inside or the purpose of each room or, or maybe even the whole building. But if that building has been made properly, then it will reflect exactly how the architect planned it. If the builder has followed the drawings correctly, then that building will fulfill its purpose, what it was designed for. And when it comes to history, both the architect and the builder are the same. God. Revelation 7, we hear this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. See, there have been four horsemen representing the calamities that seems to persist, persist throughout history. And yet, we now have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth stopping the complete destruction of the earth. And this sealing of the servants is it's like the story of the Exodus. When the Israelites put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doors, we're told that that mark caused God's judgment to pass over that household and anyone inside it. And here we are told the angels are doing the same for the servants of the living God. John, here's the number, 144,000. So remember, we're dealing in this genre of the apocalyptic, so you don't need to worry about the exact number, 144,000. But it's a combination of numbers we've heard before, isn't it? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 represents the complete number of God's people, 12 tribes. So 12 times 12 is completeness upon completeness, completeness squared, if you like, and then multiplied by 1,000, a multitude So what you're meant to hear is you have the absolute total of God's people brought in, the complete multitude. Every last person that God is bringing into his kingdom will be there. But what are they doing? Verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remember those martyrs under the altar? They were given white robes. And now we're told the entire multitude is wearing white robes. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language crying out in one voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the picture is, it's all of God's people and all of his angels too. Verse 11, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Do you know what the first thing you read uh, if you open up the Chapel Hill website is? It says, we're a church for people to find the fullness of life in Jesus. I thought it was interesting because Matt referenced the fullness of life a bit earlier. I don't know if that was planned, but I think it rings true uh, because as people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as people who have experienced true life, of salvation in knowing Jesus, we understand that is genuinely good news. But it can also be hard work. Sometimes it's really hard to help people see that fullness of life is in Jesus. Sometimes it's really hard for you or me to remember that our joy, our satisfaction, our completeness comes from knowing Christ when we're having a rough time at work. It's hard when our relationships are strained. It's hard when we're at the end of our tether with our kids. And I want to encourage you and to remind you that we're not involved in God's mission because it's the easy thing to do or because Pastor Michael or our elders or our community group leaders tell us to do so. But it's because it has always been God's plan. Do you remember in the Old Testament God's purpose for calling Moses and bringing his people out of Egypt was so that he could have a people out of all the nations to call his own that would worship him. Again and again in places like Jeremiah we hear this phrase that they would be his people and he would be their God. And the picture we have here in Revelation 7 is the completion of that mission. People from every nation, every tribe, every language will be there. Revelation 7 is mission accomplished. For many years, we had the privilege of knowing a couple uh, who served as missionaries in Japan, uh, doing church planting or discipleship, reading the Bible with anybody who was interested are helping to have a new building constructed. They supported local Japanese believers to be trained for ministry and even installed one as a pastor. And for over 20 years, they served the Lord in Japan. Do you know how many converts they saw in their time? How many converts they maybe averaged per year? People who made a lasting commitment to follow Jesus. One, one, One person per year. For all the weekly Bible studies or reading with interested non-believers, for all their follower conversations or crisscrossing Tokyo on a bicycle or on the subway, for all the shared meals and prayer meetings, one per year. But you know, if you asked Gary or Ruth whether it was worth it, they would reply absolutely yes every time. Because for all the heartbreak that came when a person decided they wanted to stop meeting up or no longer wanted to come to church, for every time there was a person who slipped away from church community because of family pressure, they knew that every person who turned to Jesus would be standing there in that multitude described in Revelation 7. Even if it was only 20 believers over 20 years, those 20 Would be standing around the throne of God Himself. So now Gary and Ruth are back in Australia and they've been dealing with health complications. I'm sure, due in a large part to the stress over the years of doing ministry in a different culture and being on the front line of the spiritual battle to see people come to know Jesus. And I want to acknowledge this following Jesus can be really hard. And trying to help other people to see and treasure Jesus can, it seems to bring more difficulty to our lives than if we just stay quiet instead. When it comes to loving a person instead of retaliating in anger, when you need to correct your child one more time for their sinful behaviour, when you need to consciously choose to forgive instead of allowing resentment to fester, or when your tears fall, because of the hurts you have absorbed for doing the right thing. But this is the encouragement to you and to people like Gary and Ruth that comes to us from Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, "'Who are these, clothed in white robes, "'and from where have they come?' I said to him, "'Sir, you know.' And he said to me, "'These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation.'" and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I mean, that sounds pretty special, doesn't it? Never again to hunger or thirst, never again scorched or sunburned. We're told the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. Jesus himself will lead you to springs of living water. And, And this last one gets me every time. That God Himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. For every hurt, for every tear that's come out of your eyes, God Himself will wipe those away. You see, as we've made our way through these chapters in Revelation today, as we have switched camera angles, we've seen behind the scenes, we've seen the blueprint, the plan, and now we're finally seeing the conclusion. We're not meant to be alarmed or anxious in this world. Even in a world that seems to experience wave after wave of trouble, we don't need to be surprised and we don't need to be alarmed. Despite all the trouble that we see before us, the heaven reality, heavenly reality is the same. God is still sitting on his throne in absolute sovereign control. And his plan from the very beginning was to bring his people safely home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, that in times of confusion, uh, in times where trouble surrounds, we can remember that you are seated on your throne and that nothing that happens uh, goes unrestrained. But Lord, a day is coming. your coronation, Lord, where the rulers of the earth will admit that you are God and God alone. Lord, we thank you that despite the difficulty and how hard it can be, Lord, we thank you that your promise is that you will bring your people home, that your plan from the very beginning was to have a people you could love and call your own, a people who would love you and praise you for what you have done. Lord, we thank you for a certain future. We thank you, Lord, that you are building your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you might strengthen our arms, strengthen our souls, and make our hearts soft to continue to follow you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.